This is Paul Schneider today on the 137th edition of Sports Untold Podcast, also on RainierAvenueRadio.world. My special guest today is Greg Bishop, a senior sports illustrator writer, one of the most prominent uh, American sports journalists today. Greg, I'll get back to you in a minute or two. My producer and assistant, Olivia Coyne, who Greg just had the chance to meet. Olivia and our, my family and her family and I go back a long time. And Olivia's doing a great job as my producer and assistant. Olivia is a student at University of Washington. My podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbeam. You, go to, you can go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. You can also um, just click YouTube Sports Untold. You can watch a bunch of my shows and feel free to comment and Click the like button, and we and I appreciate anybody who wants to listen to, to more of my shows. Uh, as mentioned, Mr. Bishop is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, award-winning writer, 80 magazine cover stories at Sports Illustrated, pretty impressive. Previously covered the Seahawks for the Seattle Times, and Greg covered the Jets for the New York Times. We'll have to talk about this. Uh, Emmy Award sports winner with Showtime and three-time nominee. Greg's also the ghost writer of three books. Big, uh, big list of accomplishments. Uh, we'll, we're going to get into a whole bunch of stuff about Greg and his career. Greg, thank you for coming in the 137th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainer Avenue Radio. Well, Paul and Olivia, thank you for having me. And Paul, thank you for the introduction. Uh, I got to tell my agents they're on the clock. You know, I think that was better than they do. So thank you. I, I don't know about that, but but I want to, want to, I like to get a little biography in on my guests before we before I start interview. All, all interviewers have their styles, just something like I commonly do. Well, Greg, you know you've had a a long career now in sports journalism. As mentioned, you're now a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Kind of tell us how you got the bug to go into sports journalism, and maybe just tell us. Um, you're obviously a talented writer, but but what what do you think you did that got you to the top of American sports journalism? Wow, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I'll start with the bug, and you'll like it because you're local. Uh, I grew up in Tacoma. I went to Curtis High School. I lived mostly in University Place when I was a kid, and my dad got the Tacoma News Tribune every day delivered to the house, and I read the sports section like the nerd that I was and am every day before school and you know people don't read those things the way they used to but those are some of the most authoritative voices in the history of seattle sports journalism you know john clayton was there when i was reading the tacoma news tribune may he rest in peace uh mike Kahn was there a great national nba writer may he rest in peace bart wright was one of the columnists john mcgrath who became a friend of mine was one of the columnists and it really sort of primed me to th- think about something that I don't think people think about, which is writing about sports as a career. You know, then when I was in ninth grade, I wrote a paper for a class that I wanted to write for the New York Times, which in hindsight seems uh, incredibly hubristic. And, uh, you know, from there, I think it was a series of, I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that sort of uh, says they're humbled by the series of events that led them somewhere, but it was pretty wild. You know, I, I barely, been on a flight before I went to Syracuse for college. I happened to be in the same period of time at Syracuse as Pete Thamel, who is uh, ESPN's college football insider. He was my editor at school. Uh, Jeff Passan was my partner in crime. He's ESPN's baseball insider. We're the same year and same class. And I think we taught each other a lot more than anything we learned in class, which is no disrespect to the Newhouse School. But I think we really, you know, honed in on what we're doing now and then I came back home to work for the Seattle Times that's kind of a cool story if you want to get into it went to the New York Times to follow Thamel after that and followed him to SI and so I think relationships meant a lot I think learning how to write in a uh, more narrative way helped me at SI that was something I had to learn in my mid-30s and uh, now the reason I'm doing so many other things is just because of the threats to print journalism so TV scripts and documentary scripts and documentary producing and ghostwriting has all grown out of me trying to protect uh, the my ability to earn an income. So um, I'd say all those things are kind of in the mix, and I'd hope that some of the stories I wrote played a role as well. well we're going to get a little more into the future of, of, of sports journalism and some of your thoughts on, on that subject. One thing I want to share with you, Greg, is I, I have a Tacoma tie. I went to law school at 
University of Puget Sound law that became Saudi University Law School in the 90s. So I lived in Tacoma for a couple of years and I used to read the TNT a lot. And I think the Tacoma News Tribune is an underrated paper and has always had a great sports section. I want to throw that up at the TNT. Absolutely. And, you know, I actually know their their publisher a little bit, David Zeke. You know, we went to the same church even in UP and at some points I thought maybe I'd end up working there. But yeah, they're consistently strong. You know, you look at Seattle Times now, like Ryan Divish came from there. Uh, he's not the only one that did. And I think you could argue because we were probably in Tacoma at the same time. I graduated from Curtis in 98. And, uh, you know, I think you could argue at that time, especially. But even when I came back in the mid 2000s, that the News Tribune sports section was as strong or stronger than either of the Seattle ones. And back then there were two. Always been a solid paper to come in his tribune. I don't think some Seattleites realize that. So I want to throw a little plug for the TNT in their, their sports section. Greg, you, you did a story recently and you kindly sent me an article about this. And I'm a Sports Illustrated subscriber, but you sent an article about the Calgary Flames assistant general manager, Chris Snow, who died at age 42, I believe from complications of Luke Eric's disease. Why don't you tell us a bit more about Chris and, and your connection to him? I believe you went to his service in Calgary recently. Yeah, and I was figuring this might come up, so I saved him from the group we had at school. But he was one year younger than I was. And at one point, him, Passon, and I ran the Daily Orange sports section. We got very close. You know, the Daily Orange is uh, it, it, it is indicative in the name. We publish daily. We would work till 4 a.m. every day. Uh, my 8.30 Buddhism class, let's say I attended 10% of the classes. That's one I always like to tell. And Chris always just struck me as a very measured, very smart guy. It wasn't surprising to me when he ended up working for a team, which is a lot more common now. You've seen people leave SI, even, you know, the Lee Jenkins is at the Clippers, Luke Wynn is with the Raptors. Uh, but when Chris did it, yeah, I don't think it really had been done. You know, and Esquire ended up writing a story on him, which we all thought was wild. And he ended up going into hockey analytics. And then he ended up getting fired in Minnesota from the wild. And then he ended up latching on with the Calgary Flames. And, you know, obviously last week was tough. All of us went back to Calgary for the funeral. But the thing that really blew my mind and you can see I'm wearing my flames hat still hasn't come back my head since Chris died unless I couldn't wear a hat somewhere but it just learning about his life up in Calgary was fascinating to me I mean we are a bunch of storytellers and the speeches at his funeral were moving and incredible and I just learned so much about how he approached analytics in the NHL and how he changed the way that Calgary drafts and develops players and we got to go to the Saddle Dome, which is one of the oldest uh, arenas in sports, and watch a game there, and it was packed, and everybody was screaming, and his wife and the kids were there, and, you know, I, I don't know, it was, there was some beauty within really profound sadness, and, you know, I've, I've been saying this because I've done a few about Chris since he died, um, there is a GoFundMe that's set up, easily searchable on Google, if, if anybody would like to contribute you know this this family's got two kids that are in their teens and they uh well the daughter's not even and you know they could use any help that anybody who is inclined could give thank you for sharing about chris snow i want to definitely have a little attention about chris and his life today and i I appreciate you sharing that and it's always hard greg as an interviewer when you make a transition from something very intense and emotional to something maybe a little less emotional so i I, I'm cognizant of those transitions because my next question is a is a tad bit lighter, but um, I guess that's just part of part of interviewing. I got a question. You've covered football for for so many years, and Deion Sanders was on the cover of Time Mag. He is on the cover of Time Magazine this week. He's obviously an iconic American athlete, former football and baseball player, and did a great job coaching in the HCB University, Jackson State. Now the Colorado coach. But here's my question for you. Is this Deion Sanders story getting too much attention by the by the media? Aren't there some other assistant coaches and college coaches who have some interesting stories too? Yeah, I think that the sentiment overall is fair. Um, I've read a lot of Deion stuff and I liked some of it. You know, there was an athletic piece on uh, the woman who runs his businesses that I thought was really insightful. You got a lot of scene pieces, a lot of comparison to USC. 
I guess I would quibble less with the volume, although I understand uh, the point there and more so with the tenor. You know, I think sometimes when somebody gets hot in this click driven world that we live in, you know, people write a lot of stories about them that uh, don't add anything to the narrative, you know, and that to me is more of a confidence issue than a volume one. And I I'm, I say that gently, you know, it's not easy when your editor says, hey, you got to go write Dion to figure something out, you know, especially if you're not sourced with that person or that program. That said, I think what's contributing to that sentiment is a lot of stories that feel exactly the same, that hit the same bullet points, that describe the same scene. I think in general, sports writers could be more creative. And when I, you know, the least favorite part of my job these days is probably the cover profiles. And I say that knowing how that sounds, you know, but it's very difficult to go spend time with a Tom Brady or a Jalen Hurts or any of the people I profiled out on the cover and find something new and interesting and move the story in a direction where people are talking about it rather than just summarizing what's already out there. And with Dion, that's difficult. Like I've tried to get him tangentially for stories. I found interviewing him and securing it to be pretty hard. And I think they tend to go to reporters they know a little bit, which isn't unusual either. But you add all that stuff together, and I think you have the calculus I'm describing, which is a lot of stories, but none that really stick with you in terms of being memorable, or a few. Don't get me wrong. I think Dion's an absolutely fascinating guy. I, I just sort of wondering, and I, I am asking the question, but it doesn't mean I, I have know, I think I think it's fair. You know, I think I think there are not enough good stories on Dion, and if we're going to beat that horse, you know, that if that drum will be beaten to death, I think we can be a lot more interesting. Yeah, there's definitely some other coaches that have some interesting life stories. That was kind of part of the premise of my, my question. Well, that's the other thing I'd say is uh, I was just reading this morning a piece in The Athletic, and I am not their PR person, but I do read a lot of stuff, uh, uh, by Brian Hamilton, who's a friend of mine. He wrote about Colorado State and how interesting they are. So, yeah, to your point, Colorado's not even the most interesting team in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, the Colorado State story, they have like a sumo wrestler and all sorts of weird guys on their team, and – I do think that there are stories like that that could be told more often, for sure. Yeah, and that goes not just with sports, all sorts of other subject matters. You know, there there's probably some underreported stories, but sure. great sports illustrator, longtime subscriber. Um, Thank you. It's now down to absolutes. I, I, it's a once a month print publication. It went from being a it was like a ritualistic weekly magazine when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties. I was always waiting for Sports Illustrated to arrive at my old parents' home. And then it went to buy a, become a bi-weekly publication. Uh, why don't you tell us about the future of Sports Illustrated? What's your take on, on it becoming a once-a-month print publication? Yeah, a lot, a lot goes into that, that one. That's a good question. Um, I got my first subscription to SI when I was eight years old. My father was a assistant football coach at Washington High School in Parkland. And uh, he got it for me. And that was probably another thing that sent me down my path. I used to hang the covers up in my room. I mean, I I am like the nerdiest sports journalist you'll ever meet. And uh, that's becoming pretty clear through this interview. So obviously, when I went to work there in 2014, I started the day after the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. I was incredibly psyched. Uh, I took the job in part, leaving the New York Times to moved back to Seattle area, you know, uh, they wanted me to stay in New York. Now I live in Kirkland. And uh, I think that um, at that time, it still felt like the old days, like Gary Smith was still writing occasionally. Tim Layden helped get me on at SI. And he uh, was instrumental to me there. John Wertheim was great to me. And, you know, I met Jack McCollum. I met Tom Verducci. I mean, this, you know, for a kid like me, and I've interviewed a lot of really famous athletes, you know, the Roger Federer, Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. But to me, those guys like like there's a guy, Chris Hunt, that doesn't work for us anymore, who edited Gary Smith. That I like forget Tom Brady. That was like the one of the coolest moments of my life to like eat a meal with that guy. And, you know, people were predicting a lot then that we were going to die. And I didn't necessarily sense it. You know, I think in the years past. That have come since, and I should just be careful what I say here, that there's just been every kind of problem that journalism entities have. Some of that is natural, and this part I'm more comfortable talking about. You know, some of it's natural, the business. People are consuming things in a different way. It's why you see me writing in other forms, you know? Like, 
I think before I saw myself as a print writer, now I see myself as a storyteller who may write for Sports Illustrated and may not, you know, whereas before in 2014, I probably never wanted to leave, you know, advertising money dries up, uh, you know, they have to do layoffs. We've had more, I think, than most, you know, six or seven rounds. You have new ownership. There are, you know, uh, that is just never an easy calculus because they may not believe in the ethos or soul of what you're doing. Um, you know, as our staff shrunk, more responsibilities are added. I mean, it's basically just like part and parcel to every journalism entity that is struggling right now. And I will say that they've done a good job of trying to keep it afloat. Uh, the magazine is interesting to me because they've had a digital focus since I went there in 2014 uh, through various iterations and ownership groups. And the magazine has become less important than more important again, and less important again. And now I'm not quite sure exactly where it stands. You know, uh, I do know they expect like one magazine story from me a month, but they'd prefer that I'm writing more in between, which is fine and actually easier. But in an overall sense, when I put all that together, you know, I, just coming from my own personal opinion, it, it makes me sad. You know, I think SI was an institution that explained how the world is explained by sports. And I think that's really hard to do. It didn't just tell you what happened or even how it happened, which is a better version of what it told you why. And I think that's the hardest thing to get to in a long in-depth story. Uh, I think you can mark time periods in our life based on what people wrote and some of the more seminal pieces that went out in the magazine. And I don't think I'm out on a limb or going to get in trouble for saying that those days are sort of over. You know, we still have, I think, really good work at the top end. There's just less of it. There's less need for it. And there's less people reading it. And so I, I would say that in an overall sense, that makes me sad, but I understand it, you know? So, you know, I feel like the real tough part of that for me was a few years ago when you realize that you've achieved your dream. And NFL players have said the same thing to me. They, they, uh, they've won a Super Bowl and thought immediately, like, how do I get back instead of being able to feel it? And, you know, guys my age, the ones that are left at SI, we had, a, we got our dream jobs and then it turned out to not be the same thing. And I'm not saying anyone should feel sorry for me. I have an awesome job and an awesome life, but yeah, it's just sort of sad in an overall sense, even if it makes sense to people who are living it. Do you think it will stay as at least a once a month print publication? I'm old school. I still enjoy print magazines personally. So Yeah, I am too. Uh, I hope so. In part because uh, the only real leverage I have left when I'm talking to athletes beyond existing relationships um, is the cover. They still want to be out there. And I'm not saying they subscribed. You know, there was a, I was uh, watching some Netflix show on the King of Collect collectibles the other day and they were auctioning off a Peyton Manning autographed one you know the one that came to his house when he was on it in 1998 his apartment in Tennessee and you know I don't know if like Jalen Hurts gets SI delivered I'd imagine he doesn't you know but they they want to be out there and they're always clamoring for it and now that we don't we used to when I started we had 26 magazine editors and at least that many you know people on the website now we have three magazine editors and maybe eight total. So we went from doing like three or four covers almost weekly, you know, because they would mix them up sometimes and put more than one on there to now there's really only like, if you count um, ones we do as commemoratives for like markets that will buy, if say the 49ers won the Super Bowl, we probably have 14 or 15. So it becomes a little bit more of a prestige place and space. And so it's definitely part of my discussions and negotiations with people that are worthy of being out there, seeing whether we can try to get them out too. you know. I had your former uh, Sports Illustrated colleague, Jeff Perlman, on a couple of years ago. We had a little chat about some of these subjects as well. Jeff's an interesting guy for sure. So Yeah, I think he's chief on the SI's dead train. When he wasn't right, maybe he is now. <laughs> um, I... Um... You've written a lot on mental health issues, Greg, and kind of tell us what garnered your interest in this topic. And it's a topic that probably a lot of sports journalists don't cover a whole lot. Tell us what 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 garnered your interest in that subject. Yeah, I would start that answer. And that I'm, I'm glad you asked it because, one, it's uh, very important to me and close to my heart. Two, I can plug my upcoming story. But three, it started... Um, 
really, I think that most writers that write long, like I do or I am doing, are in some ways trying to figure out their own lives. So generally, I think you can plot a lot of the writer and what their makeup is and the kind of life they've lived or what they're seeking to answer through what kind of stories they end up writing. I would not say that for myself, that was a conscious choice necessarily. You know, I think it was subconscious until I started figuring myself out a little more. And then I start to see, okay, I'm confused about this thing in the world. And I wrote this thing that directly relates to it, you know, or, Hey, I'm writing about mental health when I'm going through a lot of stuff and need to address my own. And the first time I really did that was definitely not planned, but I wrote Mark Kalinske a letter after his son Tyler died by suicide in 2018. He was a Tyler was a quarterback at Washington State, and I had never really ventured into this space. I'd written plenty of tragedy stories. Uh, they used to joke at the Times, New York Times, that I was the tragedy writer, and uh, been in a lot of those environments. But I don't think I saw at that time how mental health and sports would become, in part because of the Halinskis, a major topic for advocacy and stigma reduction and push for change. And so I sent Mark, you know, every story I'd written that I liked about a family. You know, sometimes I target what clips I'm sending so that people can sort of see the kind of work I do and then they can decide if they like it enough to want to put their lives out there in such a public way, you know, and I'm I'm super cognizant of the fact that like they are doing something that they probably don't even necessarily want to do. And they feel like they have to do it once or twice. And I take those stories as seriously as I take my children's safety, you know, like it has, and I know how that sounds too, but my main rule with them always is do no harm. You know, I don't want to make anything worse. My goal going into them is not to push anybody beyond what they're comfortable doing. But I did learn through the Halinskis that brutal honesty is resonant. You know, they were incredibly honest about their son. I spent hundreds of hours with them. I've written them seven or eight times, three or four for the magazine. And it informed the rest of the work that I've done in the space. I would consider Mark and Kim, and I, I know this is not something I'm supposed to say, but it's true. You know, sort of family at this point for me. Uh, objectivity in that calculus has been lost, and I don't think that's abnormal. But I want to be honest too here. And uh, you know, they they talk to my kids all the time. They visit when they're in Seattle. They help me when, like now, I'm finishing a story on Katie Meyer, the Stanford soccer goalie who died by suicide. Another incredibly family, another incredible family. I've gotten very close to Steve and Gina, her parents. Uh, that will close today, believe it or not, which means it should be out in a few weeks. And so, yeah, I guess I would add all that up to like, uh, I think I was drawn to it initially for reasons I didn't know. And because I was drawn to it initially, this is the cool part of my job within a really sucky calculus of writing about these things. Like, I, I think it really helped me with my own mental health, with understanding the importance and specifically with how I parent. My kids are six and two. Uh, they're going to enter into a world that's, you know, it can feel like it's collapsing. And they know all these people, too, in part, especially my six-year-old, because he talks to them. And I think it's cool that we're having those conversations, because to me, that's the whole point of that work, whether it's them, you know, being as honest as they are with me in hopes of changing a few lives or saving a few lives, or it's me even applying it to my own life, my friends, my colleagues, my kids. I mean, uh, it just feels a lot more fulfilling than writing even a story I really like about uh, Jalen Hurts. Wow, very impactful. And the fact that you've become friendly with many of these subjects and their families you've covered who've had some just horrible tragedies. It's, it's very, very powerful. Very, very, very powerful. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing more about that. Well, I, you know, on this podcast, I, I, I try to sometimes ask questions that maybe uh, – a guest was was not expecting and, and i try to folk i try to get into some stuff that 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 might be a little different and i i do have a question for you uh as you know in the middle east uh on october 7th um the jewish committee had their worst attacks and since the holocaust i know people have you know many strong opinions about the middle east conflict but on that topic of anti-jewish violence do you think the sport sports leagues have done enough addressing anti-Jewish discrimination 
Um, and you think more can be done on that subject? They've obviously taken on a lots of different kinds of bigotries, and I'm not trying to say any of them are more important than the other. But is that a particular prejudice you think the sports leagues have not addressed strongly enough, anti-Semitism? It's a great question, and uh, I like to do the same thing in my interviews. One of my go-tos is, what was your first car? Because it's generally a pretty indicative answer uh, for guys. Well, that was a Chevy Citation, by the way. So Yeah, yeah, you're trying to take them sort of out of it, um, yeah. you know. And it's good because you force me to think, which generally I'm on autopilot for these things. Uh, I would say that, yes, they could do more. I think as a baseline, that is absolutely fair and true. I think I can understand a little bit of why it hasn't been as targeted as, say, uh, social injustice. And I think that's because there are so many of these things that need to be addressed, along with a finite amount of resources. Now, I would tell my kids or a young writer that doesn't make it right, you know, so that maybe there is a way, especially within this terrible, awful, brutal to watch conflict where they can put some resources on this. And, you know, instead of it's just been so, so, so long that the conflict in that region has been going on that, you know, sparking some real change might ultimately help you know, making that issue less of one, you know, instead of letting it allow it, allowing it to go on and on and not trying to help. And so, yeah, I would say all, th all those things are true. And I guess my answer is nuanced, but um, I'm definitely not trying to hedge. I, I think I can see why they'd be hesitant, but I think it's also easy to, for anyone to see why they could do more. It just seems that when some players have made some statements about the Jewish community, there's been some reaction, but maybe it hasn't been as strong as the reactions and when um, discrimination comes against some other communities. That's something that some people in the Jewish community feel that maybe. Yeah. You know, and I think that starts just just being honest here. Like, I don't necessarily myself feel this way, but I think people fighting for social justice would say to that that they have had less support and advocacy for a lot longer time and that they deserve to really focus on that issue now. I personally am not really sure how I feel about that, but I think that accounts for some of the hesitancy from decision makers who don't want to do good and face backlash, which is sort of sports. And again, not necessarily the right thing, but just something that I think is in their head. That said, I don't think the people in the Jewish community are wrong. You know, I just think that if I'm the NBA commissioner, for instance, right, who understands this calculus, I think, pretty well, I've got to weigh what my players will say about social justice slash injustice versus making a deeper, you know, push into advocacy for something that's related more to me and less to them. And I think that that's probably a more difficult decision than people would realize. And th these are complex subjects. I'm, we're going to move on to some other subjects today, too. But then you get into all these subjects of why is anti-Semitism not part of social justice movements enough? You know, so they, there's all sorts of stuff. Here. These and are, I think, I, and I think it's a great point, you know, yeah. like why why separate them? I don't yeah, know why right. they are, but I would guess that it's people wanting the maximum amount of impact for the cause they're fighting for is what ends up splitting it up. But right. I mean, it's it's actually a really fascinating story. Maybe maybe you spark some inspiration here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe you tried a story about this. Yeah, yeah. You know, some, some issues came up with Kyrie Irving on this subject, and I think Deshaun Jackson. Th there's others. And I think Deshaun Jackson um, was invited to go to Auschwitz. I think, I think there was a, I think Julian Edelman wanted to kind of reach out to him and say, Hey, that's just, I want you to learn more and let's get together. I can learn more about your community as well. So sometimes there can be a, a discriminatory incident can turn into a positive incident too. You know? So yeah. The other thing, uh, Robert Kraft goes annually. I remember that because I've talked to guys that have gone with him, uh, Drew Bledsoe, for instance, you know, and really gave him a sense of the history there and, and why that region is important. Now, I think fixing the conflict would be important regardless. I don't want that to come across wrong, but right, right. I also think that, I mean, that beyond important regardless, there is so much history there and so much of our world started there that, you know, I think it would be helpful for people to understand it better just in general. You know, yeah, we're not going to solve the Middle East conflict in this interview, but I, I wanted to just kind of pick your brain on that particular subject. It's been a pretty timely one, especially what happened in early earlier this month. Sure. Well, these are two questions I've asked every guest uh, since about the last since the last few years. Um, you, you've interviewed some amazing sports figures. I mean, just hearing about some of these people, I'm just in awe. But who is a living sports figure you would enjoy? spending some time with interviewing and who's a deceased sports figure in history you would have enjoyed spending some time with interviewing oh that's good 
living let's see you know my answer to that recently had been andrew luck but then seth my friend seth wickersham got him so and we took the same approach and he went with seth which is unfortunate but happens uh so i won't say him today he's uh you're off my list andrew cut out uh Man, living that I would want to talk to. You'd be a commissioner, an owner, just some, some living figure. Yeah, I think uh, I'd go Gary Payton. I was a massive Sonics fan as a kid. You can see him wearing my Sonics Forever sweatshirt. My first major takeout was in the end of my tenure at the Seattle Times. Takeout means longer story, and it was on Sean Kemp. So I, that's why I would pick Payton now. Sean was trying to come back to the NBA. It was after he had gained a bunch of weight. He was living in Houston. It was the first time I really did or tried to do what I do now. And uh, don't read it, please. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I would pick Gary Payton in part because I want to hear stories from that era, in part because my understanding is those teams were a little more, shall we say, uh, checkered in terms of personality than people let on. And in part because I think that's probably the best team in NBA history that had that didn't win a title. So I think there's a lot of resonance. Maybe that should be another story I pursue. Paul, you gave, give me all sorts of good stuff this morning. Now, in terms of deceased... Who... Real quickly, real quickly, real yeah. quickly. Nobody had mentioned Gary Payton yet. And I had a chance to met, meet Gary once. What what an, what an amazing guy. But I just, what a great answer. So I love it. Is that uh, Jolton Joe behind you? In your... That's Lou Gehrig behind me. Uh, Lou Gehrig behind you. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I got Alan Iverson up here. I was in Philadelphia earlier this year. So I got Alan Iverson, uh, Bobblehead, oh, you know. Yeah. So I have a few, I have a few, uh, a few sports figures here. You know, I got, uh, let's say I got a couple of Bob Rondo here, a couple other figures, you know, let's see yeah. here. Yeah. Edgar Martinez. So Steve Kelly bobblehead, but I would pick Joe DiMaggio and I would do it for an unusual reason. People don't usually ask deceased. That's a good question. Uh, my mentor is Gay Talese, who is one of the best writers that's still alive in America. Mm -hmm. And wrote me a, a letter after a story I wrote. I parlayed that into a mentorship. He tried to make a movie out of that story. We it never got made. But uh, he wrote what I think is the best profile with the kind of stories that I do for our cover ever written. And it was uh, it was either, well, two candidates. One would be as Frank Sinatra has a cold. The other would be the profile he wrote on Joe. And I would really want to ask Joe about gay in his process and how you get to that level of depth with somebody who's that famous. You know, it would be... I think the equivalent now would be if I were able to get to that level of depth with Travis Kelsey while he embarks on this romance with Taylor Swift. And trust me, I've tried to get even his mom, who I know really well. And, you know, it's a different world these days. But also Gabe may just be a better journalist. And so there's no shame in that. He's an all-timer. But I would love to interview Joe about the process of Gabe doing that story, mostly because I'm really curious about it. What a great answer, Joe DiMaggio. Now, Gatesley's, I believe he wrote a famous Esquire article on Frank Sinatra. I think it's Esquire's. Yeah, that Esquire magazine's most famous story, right? Yeah, to me, like most people would say that's the best profile ever written, which is why yeah. I kind of threw it in. Right. I'd, I'd say that one, DiMaggio. Yeah, those two, I would say, like for me, are pretty even, but they're both amazing. And yeah, Gay's, Gay's the best. We used to go to dinner with him every Sunday at Elaine's, which is. Uh, Famous restaurant where actors and writers and stuff go in New York. She died a few years ago, the owner. And uh, yeah, it was kind of fun. My friends used to tease me because when he was trying to make a movie on the story I wrote, which was about Bart Scott, if you'll remember the loquacious linebacker. And he was like the biggest trash talker in the NFL. And he was raised entirely by women in Detroit. So it was like the warrior raised by women. And Gay was trying to piggyback off the blind side uh, popularity and make a movie off it. So he used to take a cab to my apartment in the East Village and ride over to games with me and my Times issued uh, Grand Am. And uh, my friends would always tease me. They're like, don't kill them. That'll be the only thing anybody ever remembers of you, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But just a prince of a guy. Had the best Christmas parties too. I mean, everybody was there. James Lipton, uh, Mike Bloomberg, like, yeah, pretty wild. You've met some fascinating people in your life. Gay Talese, what a great writer. I, I appreciate you mentioning that name. I have a little funny Elaine or kind of funny Elaine story for you. So my my mom told me this story a couple of times. So my late dad and my mom were at Elaine's, I don't know, maybe in the early 70s or something, late 60s. And uh, my mom was upset that I guess Woody Allen and his companion were 
allowed to cut in line and get an immediate seat. And and my mother said she felt very humbled that, you know, so a couple that a celebrity comes in and gets an immediate seat. My mom and dad were still still sitting there waiting, you know, like everyone else. So, so uh, anyhow. That's really funny. Yeah, we've, we've had a few of those moments in there. And I even remember sitting and on both sides of it. Yeah. One time we were supposed to sit down and they put the Mr. Big from Sex and the City there instead. You know, uh, I remember that. Yeah. So I guess we have something in common, Paul. Yeah, you and my mother could talk about your relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she'll, she'll probably listen to this later, so it will, it will chuckle. Uh, who is a living sports journalist you'd love to spend time with? And who's a deceased sports journalist in history we'd love to spend time with? Oh, man. Oh, this is awesome. What a great question. I'm not sure anyone's ever asked me this. Um, okay, living... You know, Gay would have been like my top one, but I've spent a lot of time with him. I'm trying to think of somebody I don't know really well. Because, you know, I've spent time with Steve Russian. He would have been somebody like that for me. I've, I'd never really talked to or spent time with Gary Smith. He's an obvious answer. But I feel like that's sort of a cliched played out one for somebody in my position. I want to be more interesting than that. Um, I would say... You know, Dan Jenkins is a guy deceased that I think I would answer in part because to me, he's really fascinating as a writer. Like he's sort of still in the realm of new journalism was exploding. Right. And so he had a very different way of writing about sports. He had really, really good information, which I think can sometimes be harder to obtain these days. And yet he could write anything with a vivid, colorful, descriptive nature. And his books, I think, are proof of that. But he really could turn a profile. And this is what I try to do in my own work. Uh, obviously, I, I would never compare myself to him, but I borrowed from it. And, you know, he could basically turn a magazine profile into more like a movie. You know, it feels like a true narrative. It has a story arc. It has character development. It very intentionally, you know, does things that are techniques you have to learn or else you're going to write a lot of long stories that to me, most of the ones I read are poorly put together. And again, I know how all this sounds, but we're we're getting nerdy on the writing part of it. I would want to ask him how I'm a sports nerdy guy too, a nerdy guy in general. But yeah, I would want to ask him about how he did it. You know, like I know how Gary did it. He interviewed eight million people, and he really used the best stuff. But nobody's got time to do that anymore. They would never allow that for anybody, including him. And so it's not as replicable. And also, I can't write like him. You know, but I can write stylistically like Dan Jenkins, just not as well. So he would be the deceased one. And here's a cool, okay, let's do this. I, you, you can tell I like narrative. Living, and I've met her and know her a little, but I'd love to pick her brain. I'd, I'd talk to his daughter, Sally Jenkins. She's the yeah. Washington Post. For my money, uh, sharpest writing columnist in America in sports. Um, Great name. She not only can write long, she recently did a piece on Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett that went all over the internet and already got optioned for movie. But her columns consistently, I think you see a lot of columnists who are thoughtful. And I think you see a lot of columnists who want to find sort of the interesting angle in a game or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with either of those. What you see a lot less now, you know, we have a mutual friend in Steve Kelly, are people who aren't afraid to write in a way where people are going to be mad about what they wrote. I think that's way harder to do than people give it credit for. No doubt. It's not easy to be hated. Would be the I story. ask questions that people get upset with sometimes. Yeah, I'm just asking yeah. a question. And it's like, uh, you know, um, I I wrote a story on that Bremerton football coach last year who ended up in the Supreme Court for praying, and I got ten thousand death threats. You know, so. Oh. By the way, I'd love uh, to have that guy as a guest. I think he'd be a fascinating guest, that coach. So I know, I've been thinking about asking him about how these stories turn both our lives upside down for a while. You right. Know? But right. I don't know if I want to invite him back in my life, the Christians. I mean, uh, so. A thousand death threats over just feeling a story. I guess. But what, I, what I'm saying is, like, I think somebody like Sally writes in a ways that people will hate what she wrote. And so did Steve. And I just think that's one of the hardest things to do. But really important in terms of journalism as an entity as it moves forward. Like, a lot of the sports end of this is going to teams and players, and most of that content is terrible. It is mostly palatable versions of bad stories, which should be unreadable and watchable and consumable. Maybe they're not. Maybe I'm just a get off. But you pick the Jenkins. Dan Jenkins is your deceased sports journalist you'd have to spend time with, and his daughter Sally Jenkins is the living one. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going for a little narrative arc there, and I think, yeah. you know, I think between the the two of them. To me, like, if you tell a really interesting story sharply with good information, 
like all these all this talk about clicks and how people consume stuff give me anything either of those two did and all those arguments go out of the water like we keep focusing on clicks like we're giving people the right stuff we're not we're giving them a, every once in a while something with a lot of value and then just a bunch of crap and then we're saying they don't read it it's self-fulfilling this prophecy and to me you put one family at the forefront like oh, i was able to just connect and it explains to me what we need to do. And that's give people stuff that's valuable. Or don't give them No anything. doubt. No doubt. Love your answers to the uh, to a couple of those questions there. I uh, Speaking of our friend Steve Kelly, this is a good segue. Uh, we're friends, but on my show several times. I asked Steve this question uh, recently when he was on my show again. What What is your take of the future of the New York Times sports section? You work there and it's announced, there's been an announcement it's going to end, but then there's some talk with the union issue, maybe it could continue just in general do you can you take a minute and tell us about your take on the new york yeah. times announced they want to cancel their sports department well the the first thing i'd update uh your news they, they've done it it's it's cooked okay. um okay all my friends who work there are on to their other jobs as recently as i want to say about a week ago but i've okay. been okay. so i'm not sure you know here's uh this one is uh near and dear to my heart and a little bit complicated i'll give you the quickest version i can I was there from October 2007 to January 2014. It was the best job I ever had. And I'm cognizant that my job now is not one I should be complaining about. And I just loved it. There's a scene in the movie in Cold Blood, based on the book by Truman Capote, where he's mm -hmm. reading a newspaper, probably the Times, but I'm not sure. And he sees this, this killing that happened in Kansas, and he cuts it out, and they do a real long dramatic cut. And puts it in a book and he says i want to go write about that and that that was what it was like to work there i literally could wake up every day and say i want to go to california to do this i want to go to miami to do this for for a kid that had barely left washington state when until i was 18 it just was amazing i covered every tennis grand slam i covered olympics i covered the tour de france one year i went to bingley england to write about grass i went to LA to spend a day in Pacquiao's entourage. I went to Montreal to hit with Federer when I wrote about his footwork. And like, it just was like grownups and journalism and nobody was talking about all this stuff we have to talk about now. It just felt like you're going into battle every day with people that are smarter than you that understand like why this stuff matters and why people need it, even though they don't know that they need it as much as they do. And while you're not writing to make friends with them, you're writing to inform them and help keep the world on track. And you felt the weight of that every day. I covered the longest match in professional tennis history. And I remember telling myself, because it lasted three days, like people are going to read this 50 years from now. And is that a little bit uh, on the pompous side of things? Absolutely. But it also felt that way. Like I'm just, honestly, you felt that kind of pressure. And uh at the same time, the whole time I worked there, you always got the sense that the sports section was not super important to them. You know, I, I think Dean Bacay was much more interested in sports stories when he was our editor-in-chief during my time there than, say, Jill Abramson was or uh, Bill Keller was. Doesn't mean they didn't like him. Doesn't mean, like, when I broke all the Spygate stories about the Patriots, that they didn't put a lot of them out front. I think that um, that was clear back then. The part that is complicating for me is what happened recently. I have a lot of friends at The Athletic. I have a lot of friends from even my time there on the New York Times sports desk as it was. I naively thought that when the Times publicly said they weren't going to do what they did, that they were telling the truth. I had people on that staff I'm friends with say that they saw, you know, the, the Athletic replacing the Times sports department coming. I tried to talk them off the ledge and I ended up being wrong and they were right. And to me, that's really disappointing. That's not a paper that's in financial trouble. That to me is straight greed. I think that they want to make more money. I think they don't value sports and I don't care how this comes across at all because it's true. I also think that the athletic, uh, I'll say this diplomatically. I think that they've done an amazing job and I would consider them a journalism success story. That said, I would not place their work at the top end as a lot or very, you know, I wouldn't say that their top end is as good as it's generally made out to be by people who aren't journalists. I think they do an amazing job. 
of thoroughly covering most of the sports world. I think what you're going to miss are the snowfall from John Branch that won a Pulitzer Prize. That's not the athletic specialty, in my opinion. And that's just one opinion, but it's mine. And I think what you're going to get is a dumbing down of coverage that speaks just to the beats. And I don't think that's good for anybody. Wow, a lot there. And, uh, you know, I, I thought the New York Times sports section did a good job covering a lot of sociological and sports subjects matters. Yeah. And the question is, what do you want to be like? Do you want to have Jets and Giants coverage? OK, they always said they didn't. Now it looks like they do. Either way, I think they just want the athletics audience to count in their tally. And they paid a lot of money for an entity that loses a lot of money every year. And those can't be the factors in your decision making if what you care about is journalism. So to me, it was incredibly sad because they're just like the rest of us, you know, and I thought they were different. What a perspective coming from you as a former New York Times employee as well. And, and the, I loved it there. I still have a lot of friends there, you know, but it just to me, it it could it didn't need to happen. You know, that's that's, I guess, the baseline of it. It didn't have to be that way. You've been so generous of your time. You got some time for a few more questions? Sure. No problem. Right. Great, great. All right. Um, I'm going to fire this question at you. Who's someone you went into a story covering liking, but coming out liking less? And who's somebody went into a story not liking that much, but came out liking a lot more? Great question. Uh, I'll go local for the first okay. one. Okay. I would just preface this by saying I'm old enough and evolved enough now to to understand that none of these guys owe me anything, you know? This guy was not particularly kind to me, but it doesn't mean I felt like he should have put down a red carpet and served me espresso. You know, it's just this is part of the calculus. You're asking somebody for their time. Sometimes they're cool. Sometimes they give you a good reason why they don't want to do it. Sometimes they're a jerk. It's like any other cross section. of sure. America. Right. Right. But the guy that really surprised me was Jamie Moyer. He's locally a hero and a legend. One of the duties I had at Seattle Times, because I covered the Seahawks for a couple of years, but in my later years, I was a takeout writer. I wrote long and I would pitch in on Seahawks games as like the fourth writer or Mariners games to give Bob Finnegan a break or Huskies games to write a sidebar. And I like variety personally. So this that that was something I welcomed. And, um, you know, so I had a lot of Mariners coverage and I even got lucky and they assigned me because I think he couldn't go. I'm not sure why I got this, but I was in Detroit for Felix's first start, Felix Hernandez. So that was cool. And in dealing with Jamie Moore, he was just so caustic. And ultimately, we ended up, he ended up helping me with a couple of stories in a much better way. But I just kept thinking like, man, it, this is why people don't root for teams in our business. Because I was a Mariners fan in the 90s. I've, I watched Griffey slide in the home. I loved him and Edgar and everybody else. But interactions like the ones I had with Mr. Moore, it didn't like burn me up. I didn't go out and tell my friends. I didn't write it on Twitter, but I thought, man, like, I can't believe I rooted for these guys, you know? And like, I think there is something to like, don't necessarily want to meet your heroes, you know? Right. Right. Whereas these things are really complicated. Like I don't hold it against Jamie Moore that that happened. I'm sure I was just an annoying little, little writer who, you know, uh, one time Lavernius Cole said to, said to somebody in a group next to us, he goes, What's up, little media man? That ain't no job writing paragraphs. So, like, I yeah, I get that that sentiment exists, you know, um, and I think it's fair. At the same time, it's complicating sometimes in the other way and not always in ways I'd love. Like, I don't think Floyd Mayweather Jr. is, like, an amazing human being. I think, you know, he's been in trouble a lot. I should note that right off the bat. He's had issues with violence and women. Uh, but my interactions with him in person, like, haven't been terrible. Like, he calls me Big Boy Pants is my nickname. We have gotten on a lot of depth, including battery of women and including going into jail. He's incredibly honest. He's made mistakes. He owns up to some of them. He treats his people in some ways amazingly and in some ways terribly. And I think as I've gotten older and more evolved, I've been able to sort of, you know, people say, why are you writing about Floyd Mayweather? Well, why are you writing about Aaron Rodgers? Like, his ideas are more dangerous than, you know, you, you start parsing like whether a guy's a good guy or a bad guy, in my opinion, is difficult. Even though I think with Floyd, you can say like, you know, there's enough problems there that, you know, would sort of disqualify him from one of those. Um, but I do find it to be like, I try to not cut people a break in my work, but in dealing with them, I try to let my own experience guide it 
and just make sure I ask the questions so it's not like I'm letting that experience overtake the journalism involved. And I think straddling that line is incredibly important. But the questions you asked to me, like almost everybody I deal with, I would go one way or the other. I liked them more or less than I thought I would, in part because they have these established reputations. That's just fascinating. And by the way, speaking of Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather, I almost asked about him earlier on the subject of anti-Semitism in sports. He recently spoke out against um, what happened and I believe sent a plane to Israel. So he took a very strong stance in favor of the Jewish community. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Mayweather did, which I don't think it's got a lot of publicity, but he did. And yeah, I think yeah, all, these things, all these things are true, right? Like he's yeah. probably a bad person who's been to jail and, you know, has treated women really poorly. You right. Know? He's also done some good things that don't overtake the bad ones. They just are exist in the same place. People are complicated. And you mentioned Jamie Moyer, who you're right, had, had a local reputation as almost being a saint. And he wasn't that warm of a guy to you, apparently. So it, it's, We're it's talking multiple interactions, you know. Yeah. About, yeah. And Danny O'Neill and I did a, a project on Athlete Foundations and we featured his and he was amazing for that. So then you see, OK, he was incentive to incentivize to present that to me when it mattered to him. Which again, like back then, it probably annoyed me. Now I say, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Fascinating answers that Moyer and Mayweather, such different kind of guys, and yeah. one came out a little warmer than the other when you, when you interact with them. It's, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, favorite sports movie? Oh, man. Well, my Showtime show was just featured in Creed 2, so I should say that, but it's not. it wouldn't be a correct answer. Um, that show is called All Access, and uh, they had a fake version of it for the last one. Um, but I definitely have to go Rudy. I liked a lot of sports movies. I still cry every time I watch that movie. I'm not sure why. I like to watch it by myself in the basement here at the house, and uh, I'm not sure why, but the emotional resonance, even knowing the story is half fiction and that most of it didn't happen, which I heard from somebody who was at the stadium one day, that day, um, with the sack. Uh, doesn't ding, ding it for me at all. I still uh, gets me every time. Love it. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about, about your your uh, your two-time sports Emmy Award winner at Showtime, a three-time nominee. Tell us about some of your the episodes you've been involved in. Well, I should update that bio I sent you because uh, we're six times nominated now. Oh, uh, right, good. Two wins. And, uh, you know, essentially, uh, I was never looking to get into TV writing. I'd done some on-camera stuff for various SI video arms, you know, 60-minute style interviewing or even behind-the-camera stuff. But I had, a, I had somebody reach out to me in 2018. They had a regular writer for their main sports show. It's called All Access. Generally features a fight upcoming. But they've done the Winter Classic and a few other things in that same realm. Uh, NASCAR, I believe, uh, Jimmy Johnson won. And uh, essentially, Mark Kriegel was going to ESPN. He wrote the narration. He couldn't do it in terms of a work conflict. So somebody reached out and asked if I wanted to try. And the thing is, I thought it might be easy. Uh, I sort of overestimated the differences and underestimated the differences in form. And I took the job and it took me about a year to figure it out even come close to it i had an executive producer that taught me since then i've done like 60 of those shows uh we won for wilder fury won two of two two emmys for it and the other four nominations three of them were writing which is cool but i haven't won yet on the buffalo bills of the sports emmy category the really sad part of that is uh you know doesn't look like showtime boxing's long for this world either but i've really enjoyed it and it has really informed my other kinds of writing. You know, you have to tell, they call the open part a tease, right? And my narrator is Barry Pepper. So I got a, he's like a actor who was Roger Maris. He was in Saving Private Ryan. I have to sort of meld the ideas that we discussed into like his voice, but I get nine lines usually up to like 15. And a line is like, every time you would take a breath, you have to count as a line, not even a full sentence to tell like an entire story. And so this is a per I'm a person who writes 15,000 word drafts and, you know, we're, we're cutting the last parts of this Katie Meyer story today. And it's at like 6,500 words. You would not believe how many rounds it took to get it down there, like 10 to 15 to 20. And so it's really actually helped, but hopefully I can stay in that world. Cause I like it. It's totally different, like uh, exercising a different muscle and yeah, it's kind of cool to see your name on the credits too. I'm not gonna lie. And yeah, Oh, that's the other thing I'd say. 
I hear from way more athletes about my show than I do about my magazine covers. They they seem to watch credits more than normal humans. Because <laughs> I've never. What was that Showtime episode about that you won an Emmy Award? The uh, it would be a Wilder Fury All Access uh, epilogue. We won two for that. What was it about? Phil, Phil, uh, Phil the, the epilogue means it's coming off the fight. So that was the first time Deontay Wilder and uh, Tyson Fury fought. Nobody at that time knew um, just how crazy their two lives would be. You know, Tyson Fury had just gotten out of rehab for drugs and alcohol. Fear, uh, Wilder had knocked out every opponent but one, and he beat that guy and knocked him out later. And it was like this really huge fight. It, I remember it being the last uh, big-time event before COVID because I remember riding Mark Antanasio's plane. He owns the Brewers from L.A. to Vegas. I was doing Jim Gray's book at the time, and Jim and Mark are very good friends. Then we went to this private casino. This was a really wild day. Inside the MGM, Gavin Maloof hosted us at a Chinese restaurant inside the mansion, which is the private casino within the MGM Grand. And we ended up having dinner with everyone I just mentioned. But like on the plane over, it was Stedman Graham, you know, uh, Oprah's boyfriend slash author and speaker. Jerry West was on that plane. Mark uh, and his son, Mikey, who ran social media for Will Smith before the slap. And then at dinner, we were joined by Pat Mahomes and his agent, Chris Cabot. And I just remember thinking, like, my life is wildly amazing right now. And then like a week later is when COVID happened. And that first fight between Wilder and Fury was amazing. Wilder basically knocked Fury out in the 11th or 12th. I can't remember. And his eyes closed and rolled back in his head. And he got up and finished and won like squeaked out a decision and it led to a trilogy and everything else. But the show is the epilogue is essentially like a behind the scenes recap of that week. Great. Great. I just love it, Greg. You're a regular guy from Pierce County and just these people you've encountered. It's, 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 it's quite a story. It's, it's like a, I'm, I, we could call you like the Forrest Gump of, of sports. <laughs> you know? On the days I can stay out of my own head. I am incredibly yeah, good. incredible. I love it's just amazing. The people you've met and I, it's just, it's, it's really quite a life you've, you've, you've lived. Um, what was the most surprising thing ever learned in interview? You know, uh, most surprising, probably that, that the, the stuff I noticed at the Seattle times, you know, them selling the parking lot next to the office, them going from two buildings to one, I guess it, it took me a while to come around to like the fact that we are essentially blockbuster video clerks now, you know, that this whole thing is going that there's no other way to look at it and that I don't need to spend a lot of time worrying about it being fixed because it's not going to happen. You know, I think I probably could have seen when I was at the Seattle times still that, that this was the way journalism was going to be. But I thought that if I could just get to the New York times or just get to sports illustrated, I maybe wouldn't deal with the same problems. I'll be honest. I'd Now they're worse, you know, and some of that is climate. Some of that is other stuff, but it just, uh, you know, I have this dream all the time and I've written about this because I think it's like how a lot of us feel. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but one I consistently have is like being like right in front of a tidal wave as it's about to crash down and I'm running as fast as I can. And it's like right over my head, but it hasn't hit. And I know my time will come. You know, I would be a, an absolute fool to think I will never get laid off somewhere. And if Showtime Boxing dies, it's sort of like getting laid off. You know, I mean, that's a regular job that I do a lot. And yeah, I think that it, it it's good in the fact that it teaches us resilience. It's good in the fact that it's broadened, you know, the way that I tell stories. But if I told you in 2007 when I lost the, you know, when I left the Seattle Times that all this stuff would have happened or that I even had an inkling that it would be this incredibly chaotic and sad and everything else. Uh, I mean, I had no idea. Wow. Wow. Well, it seems like you've been able to recreate you're working a lot of ways. And so it strikes me, you're going to land on your feet regardless of, 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 of what route you go. What was your favorite uh, story covering the Jets? What was your favorite story covering the Seahawks? I love it. Okay. I'm going to show you this up here. Okay. So see, this is, these are the four people that have sent me, uh, have sent me things unprompted and then my favorite jet stories with it. So that's a okay. Tom Brady Jersey. Obviously we can't ask for autographs. Sometimes they just send it. A Mayweather cover from the cover I did off him, Carson Wentz and Brett Favre. And then uh, next to it, you're going to love this, actually. 
is uh, I was covering the Jets in 2010, which I imagine is what war correspondents feel like. Although, of course, war and football are not the same before everybody gets all up in arms about it. But, right. you know, there was always something. Braylon Edwards got a DUI. Mark Sanchez uh, was dating a 16-year-old, and there was all this worry that it wasn't okay. Uh, Rex Ryan said something inflammatory every day. Bart Scott was always putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, you know, the, the one that, that took overall was the foot fetish scandal so it came out that rex and rex ryan and his wife were into like feet that they were posting on these message boards and forums and a beat that was already crazy that always is crazy this earlier this year i did we didn't start the fire to the jets beat when i wrote about it for aaron Rodgers as an open letter and you know we go into this press conference where rex has to address the fact that he and his wife are turned on by feed which is weird enough in and of itself the gossip columnist from like page six is there. Inside Edition is there. It was just wild. This is right before Wes Welker went on to a press conference and used foot or feet like 25 times. So the whole thing was going crazy. And the next day, the po the New York Post, that's what I was showing you, had an edition. And you could see all of us in the back or in the media room interviewing Rex. And the headline is Agony of Defeat. So I thought that was pretty classic, and I saved it all these years. But if you if you look at all those, Rex, Carson, Brett, Floyd, Tom, I also have a print I'm getting back from the framer soon uh, from Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy, and I'm going to put it right next to all of them. So we're going to tie it all in a narrative bow. <laughs> As a reminder for myself, because all of those people that I'm talking about have fallen within that construct. So Rex Ryan was your biggest jet story involved Rex Ryan. And what was your biggest Seahawks story? What was your favorite yeah. Seahawks story? Yeah. Well, this one may not be popular with your listeners, but I wrote the story in 2018 with Robert Klemko on how his teammates were questioning his ability to lead them, uh, how they feel felt like the team was sinking and how they felt like Pete uh, treated him differently. And it was the one that they were, they were calling it the Titanic. Yeah. And uh, 710 Radio apologized to me on the air last year for the criticism of that story when it was turned out that I was right and uh I got death threats for that one too even from the yes. 12s but what I said then is what's played out playing out now and you know I guess you can probably tell I'm sort of a contrarian because um you know now that everybody's crushing him I sort of feel bad for him it's nice to feel vindicated sometimes in life isn't it yeah. it's funny they asked me on the radio how I felt about it and I said I know what I'm supposed to say which is that I knew my reporting was right or I wouldn't have put it into the world yeah, I didn't need your validation, but and I said this then, I'm petty enough to enjoy it. <laughs> well, now, now you have former teammates of Russell's that are are pretty much saying what you wrote, you know. So yeah, and at the time, a lot of local writers, many of whom I consider friends, framed it as we only had former teammates then. Yeah, it, it wasn't true then. It's not true now. We had guys in that locker room, guys really close to him. It just uh, there's an authenticity from his interactions with people that is lacking and that's not to say he doesn't try to be authentic that's just how they view him and that to me is an incredibly relevant story when it directly ties to a dynasty not forming ian furness gave me an interesting answer i asked him that question of who's a living sports figure you'd love to chat with ian furness on for seattle's kjr um, sports radio i asked ian that question and he said the living sports figure he would find most interesting a chat with is russell wilson if he could get russell to open up completely that was Ian's caveat with that response. I thought it was interesting. So I think it's fascinating. I also wonder if he's capable, yeah. which would be interesting. like maybe he is just telling his truth. Yeah, and the truth is to project the human his father wanted him to be, which I think is kind of sad. And and I like feel for him. Like that's a tough thing to try to make, you know, to try to really live in this exact framework that was created for you. Everybody has their complexities, so yeah. Um, this may be my last subject matter and i may have one or two more questions for you today just to, what a what a fascinating uh chat we're, we've been having uh you ghost writ three books i believe tell us about those books and uh what did you learn yeah i'm on my third one now um i actually can't talk about that one and it's not because it's um somebody who's too famous but i signed an nda the uh, person i'm writing about is uh currently in litigation they just want to anyway uh I am. Uh, I did Laurent Duvernay Tardif's book, which you know he was the guy who was the starting right guard for the Chiefs when they won the super, the first Super Bowl during the pandemic, right before the pandemic. 
And then he became, he was a doctor. So he went on the front lines during COVID. So that was like a labor of love book. And then Jim Grace was the first one I did. And uh, that was fun. You know, he wanted to focus on people that weren't himself. So there's chapters on Tyson and Ali and Jim's life is similar to mine, although much more public in that, like you kind of take these rides with people. You know, I wrote Pacquiao every couple months for 10 years, you know, and you get you form these relationships and a rhythm of going to camp before a big fight and then being at breakfast at the house. And then like you go to the fight week and there's always the major sit down on Tuesday and then you're kind of following him through the satellite interviews and you, you get on these rides and they're over. And then you think, oh, I'll never have another guy like that. And then you, you get one, you know, Jalen Hurts has been that for me lately where you just spend a lot of time with them, you know, and then you kind of become the guy that writes about him a lot. And like, you know, Brady was like that for me. And it's it just, it's very cyclical the way that all that works, you know? Um, and Jim's book was very much trying to capture the rides. And so I thought that was cool. And then I, the other one I signed to do, I like ghostwriting because it's sort of like an oral history makes the writing part of it a little bit easier for me if I have to do it quickly in part because I'm not weighing every decision as critically as I would in a magazine story, in part because it's not my book. But people misunderstand ghostwriting in general. They think that we like write together. Like those guys don't write anything. I write the book, you know, and they go through and they tweak and change and correct. And the one I've signed to do next, and it'll probably be my last one because value to hours in this in this calculus isn't great, uh, is Michael Irvin's, which I'm very excited wow. about. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. Wow. Wow. Boy, I just can't get over some of these these figures you've been able to spend time with, and it's just it's just amazing. Well, Greg, this may be my last question for today. Um, we sort of went over your a little bit your your possible future, but what what is in the future for Gray Bishop? I will ask a specific question. Well, let's start with the anchor. I got a six year old and a two year old, so my future is going to include a lot of dance recitals and basketball games and ferrying these these little monsters all around we're just getting into that my son is in uh martial arts calls it ninja class so getting a glimpse at how crowded my future will be with driving which is okay that's pretty much the only time i return calls uh you know i i'd like to stay involved in different forms as long as i can i i don't think i will ever leave si i don't think a com comparable job exists um obviously people write long at espn but they only write a few times a year and there's very few of those gigs um i like writing more not as much as they want me to but i like i don't want to write six stories a year i'd like to write 50 you know that mean a lot to me because i like being in the mix and i like doing different stuff that said i think you know in an ideal world my future is more in documentary filmmaking it's a hard crossover to make but people have done it you know john weinbach you know, now run Skydance, did the last dance. Uh, you know, he was a hack like me at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you know, Frank Rich went over and wrote like Veep and a bunch of stuff like that. I worked with him at the New York Times. Nick Bilton went from the New York Times, another colleague of mine, to working on shows like Billions. Like, I get in these rooms and it's just storytelling. You know, you're with Ron Howard or David Ellison, like big, big time dudes. And it's it's just like any other call with my editors and so ideally i'd be able to transition into that but i think more likely is i'm going to be like most writers and i think most of us are going to have to do this where you're essentially more a la carte you know i've written mission statements lately i've written speeches lately i've written parts of the books lately i've written scripts lately i've written documentary deck pitches lately and i think it's just going to be like on demand take what work i can do and just make that into a more piecemeal enough to afford to like pay for their colleges and whatnot. But I'm going to try and see if I can find a landing spot before then, you know, this, the hard part's going to be the timeline, right? Does this all happen in a year? Is it five years or 10 years? In 10 years, I feel like I could kind of have an idea, maybe even in five, but in a year, I think I'll still be doing what I'm doing now, which is. You hope to, to stay in the Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my kids are here, so I can't really. <laughs> But I like it here, you know. Well, maybe maybe you can get an interview with this the living sports figure like to chat with in the future. Most like to chat with uh from the sports untold question, Gary Payton. So maybe that could be part of your future too. So good. Why not? Maybe he'll be a documentary, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, what a what a great chat. Thank you so much, Greg, for being so generous with your time. And uh you and I will be in touch and uh really enjoyed it today. Anytime, Paul. Thank you for having me. You too. <laughs>